Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. This is Season 2. Can you believe it? I want to thank all of you for listening to Moby Dick and helping me get through that incredible volume of words. (laughs) For some strange reason, I always wanted to read Moby Dick but could never get through it. And with your help, I managed to do that. I really don't know why that was a long-time dream of mine, but dream is over, and and now we're going to start another dream. For season two, I'm going to read Treasure Island, originally written by Robert Louis Stevenson, and I took some liberties and edited and adapted this book because I really don't like passive voice. And for some reason, Stevenson and other authors write action and adventure novels using a great deal of passive voice. I also edited this book for podcasting because in my experience with Moby Dick and some of the other shorter tales, when I read a book, I can certainly flip back quite easily to cover uh, an area I didn't quite understand, or if the author used certain phrasing that didn't quite make sense to me immediately, I can just go back to the previous paragraph. But with podcasting, that's a little trickier for the listener. So I hope that my edits will make the story easier to follow for you, the listener, and hopefully make it more exciting. I will also sort of walk through some terms that we come across in the chapters, hopefully before the chapter begins. That way, if you're like me and don't quite understand the terminology or phrases used in 18th century sailing, I don't know how many experts are out there listening to my podcast, but maybe one or two. Anyway, I want to clarify those terms to the best of my ability But if there's something that comes up and I don't explain it quite well enough or not at all, feel free to go to Ye Olde Internet. And uh, I think you would be surprised how much information is out there on these terms. And they might give much better explanations than I do here. So thank you all once again for coming back for season two. And here I bring you... Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson with edits from me, Ken Davis. Dedication to S.L.O., an American gentleman in accordance with whose classic taste the following narrative has been designed. It is now, in return for numerous delightful hours, and with the kindest wishes, dedicated by his affectionate friend, the author. Now, I did a little bit of research with regards to the dedication, and I could not find or figure out who SLO is. So if you know, please send me a note at kenreadstheclassics at gmail.com. I'd love to hear about it, and I'd add it to future episodes. Next, Stevenson gives us an advertisement of sorts. And in this advertisement, he talks about Kingston, Ballantyne, and Cooper. 
And these are three other authors of his time who he sort of weaves into his advertisement. To the hesitating purchaser, if sailor tales to sailor tunes, storm and adventure, heat and cold, if schooners, islands and maroons, and buccaneers and buried gold, and all the romance retold, Exactly in the ancient way, can please as me they pleased of old, the wiser youngsters of today. So be it, and fall on. If not, if studieth youth no longer crave, his ancient appetites forgot, Kingston or Ballantine the brave, or Cooper of the wood and wave. So be it also, and may I... And all my pirates share the grave where these and their creations lie. Now, before we begin chapter one, I need to define one term, and that is Aziz, or the court of Aziz. And they were courts that they held around England in different places and at different times. And they handled both criminal and civil cases. You will hear Dr. Livesay refer to these courts at the end of chapter one. Part one, the old buccaneer. Chapter 1. The Old Sea Dog at the Admiral Benbow Squire Trelawney, Dr. Livesay, and the rest of these gentlemen asked me to write down the whole particulars about Treasure Island, from the beginning to the end, keeping nothing back but the bearings of the island, and that only because we did not lift all the treasure. I take up my pen in the year of grace, 1799, and go back to the time when my father kept the Admiral Benbow Inn, and the brown old seaman with the saber cut first took up his lodging under our roof. I remember him as if it were yesterday, as he came plodding to the inn door, his sea chest following behind him in a hand barrow, a tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man, his terry pigtail falling over the shoulder of his soiled blue coat, his hands ragged and scarred, with black, broken nails, and the saber cut across one cheek, glowing a dirty, livid white. I remember him looking round the cove and whistling to himself as he did so, and then breaking out in that old sea song that he sang so often afterwards. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. He sang in a high, old, tottering voice that he tuned and broke at the capstan bars. Then he rapped on the door with a bit of stick he carried, and when my father appeared, he called roughly for a glass of rum. When I brought him his rum, he drank it slowly, like a connoisseur, lingering on the taste, and still looking about him at the cliffs and up at our signboard. 
This is a handy cove, says he at length, and a pleasant sitiated grog shop, much company mate. My father told him no, very little company, the more was the pity. Well then, said he, this is the berth for me. Here you, matey, he cried to the man who trundled the barrow. Bring up alongside and help up my chest. I'll stay here a bit, he continued. I'm a plain man. Rum and bacon and eggs is what I want, and that head up there for to watch ships off. What you mot call me? You mot call me captain. Oh, I see what you're at there. And he threw down three or four gold pieces on the threshold. You can call me when I've worked through that, says he, looking as fierce as a commander. And indeed, as bad as his clothes were, and coarsely as he spoke, he had none of the appearance of a man who sailed before the mast, but seemed like a mate or skipper accustomed to be obeyed or to strike. The man who came with the barrow told us the mail set him down the morning before at the Royal George, that he inquired what inn sat along the coast, and hearing others speak well of ours, I suppose, and describe it as lonely, he chose it from the others for his place of residence. He remained quite a silent man by custom. All day he hung round the cove or upon the cliffs with a brass telescope. All evening he sat in a corner of the parlor next to the fire and drank rum and water, very strong. Mostly he would not speak when spoken to, only look up sudden and fierce and blow through his nose like a foghorn. And we and the people who came about our house soon learned to let him be. Every day when he came back from his stroll, he would ask if any seafaring men had gone by along the road. At first we thought it was the want of company of his own kind that made him ask this question, but at last we began to see he was desirous to avoid them. When a seaman did put up at the Admiral Benbow, as now and then some did, making by the coast road for Bristol, he would look in at him through the curtain door before he entered the parlor, and he was always sure to be as silent as a mouse when any such was present. For me, at least, I understood the matter, for I shared in his alarms. He took me aside one day and promised me a silver fourpenny on the first of every month if I would only keep my weather eye open for a seafaring man with one leg and let him know the moment he appeared. Often enough, when the first of the month came round and I applied to him for my wage, he would only blow through his nose at me and stare down at me. But before the week was out, he was sure to think better of it, bring me my four-penny piece, and repeat his orders to look out for the seafaring man with one leg. How that personage haunted my dreams, I need scarcely tell you. On stormy nights, when the wind shook the four corners of the house, and the surf roared along the cove and up the cliffs, I would see him in a thousand forms, and with a thousand diabolical expressions. Now the leg would be cut off at the knee, 
now at the hip. Now he became a monstrous kind of creature who had never had but the one leg, and that in the middle of his body. In my worst nightmares, I saw him leap and run and pursue me over the hedge and ditch. And altogether, I paid pretty dear for my monthly four-penny piece in the shape of these abominable fancies. But though the idea of the seafaring man with one leg terrified me so, I was far less afraid of the captain himself than anybody else who knew him. On many nights he took a good deal more rum and water than his head would carry, and then he would sometimes sit and sing his wicked, old, wild sea songs, minding nobody. But sometimes he would call for glasses round, and force all the trembling company to listen to his stories, or bear a chorus to his singing. Often I heard the house shaking with, Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum, all the neighbors joining in for dear life, with the fear of death upon them, and each singing louder than the other to avoid remark. For in these fits he overrode all his companions, he would slap his hand on the table for silence all round, he would fly up in a passion of anger at a question, or sometimes because none was put. And so he judged the company failed to follow his story. Nor would he allow anyone to leave the inn till he had drunk himself sleepy and reeled off to bed. His stories frightened people worst of all, for he told dreadful stories about hanging and walking the plank and storms at sea and the dry tortugas and wild deeds and places on the Spanish main. By his own account, he lived his life among some of the wickedest men that God ever allowed upon the sea, and the language in which he told these stories shocked our plain country people almost as much as the crimes that he described. My father feared he would ruin the inn, for people would soon cease coming here to be tyrannized over and put down, and sent shivering to their beds. But I really believe his presence did us good. People were frightened at the time, but on looking back, they rather liked it. He made fine excitement in an otherwise quiet country life, and a party of the younger men pretended to admire him, calling him a true sea dog and a real old salt and such like names and saying he and men like him made England terrible at sea. In one way, indeed, he bade fair to ruin us, for he kept on staying week after week, and at last month after month, so that all the money had been long exhausted, and still my father never plucked up the heart to insist on having more. If ever he mentioned it, the captain blew through his nose so loudly that you might say he roared and stared my poor father out of the room. I saw him wringing his hands after such a rebuff, and I am sure the annoyance and the terror he lived in greatly hastened his early and unhappy death. All the time he lived with us, the captain made no change whatever in his dress but to buy some stockings from a hawker. One of the cocks of his hat fell down, and he let it hang from that day forth, 
though it annoyed him greatly when it blew. I remember the appearance of his coat, which he patched himself upstairs in his room, and which, before the end, was nothing but patches. He never wrote nor received a letter, and he never spoke with any but the neighbors, and with these, for the most part, only when drunk on rum. None of us ever saw him open the great sea chest. Only one man ever dared cross him, and that occurred towards the end, when my poor father declined, taking him off his feet. Dr. Livesay came late one afternoon to see the patient, took a bit of dinner from my mother, and went into the parlor to smoke a pipe until his horse should come down from the hamlet, for we had no stabling at the old Benbow. I followed him in, and I observed the contrast between the neat, bright doctor with his powder as white as snow and his bright black eyes and pleasant manners, and the cultish country folk, and above all, with that filthy, heavy, bleared, scarecrow of a pirate of ours, sitting far gone in rum, with his arms on the table. Suddenly, the captain began to pipe up his eternal song. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil had done for the rest. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. At first, I supposed, the dead man's chest to be that identical big box of his upstairs in the front room, and the thought mingled in my nightmares with that of the one-legged seafaring man. But by this time, we all long ceased to pay any particular notice to the song. It was new that night to nobody but Dr. Livesay and on him, I observed, it did not produce an agreeable effect, for he looked up for a moment, quite angrily, then he went on with his talk to old Taylor, the gardener, on a new cure for the rheumatics. In the meantime, the captain gradually brightened up at his own music, and at last flapped his hand upon the table before him in a way we all knew to mean silence. The voices stopped at once, all but Dr. Livesay's. He went on as before, speaking clear and kind and drawing briskly at his pipe between every word or two. The captain glared at him for a while, flapped his hand again, glared still harder, and at last broke out with a villainous low oath, Silence there between decks! "'Were you addressing me, sir?' says the doctor. And when the ruffian had told him with another oath that this was so, "'I have only one thing to say to you, sir,' replies the doctor, "'that if you keep on drinking rum, "'the world will soon be quit of a very dirty scoundrel.' The old fellow's fury rose to a pitch. He sprang to his feet, drew and opened a sailor's clasped knife, and balancing it on the palm of his hand, threatened to pin the doctor to the wall. The doctor never so much as moved. He spoke to him as before, over his shoulder and in the same tone of voice, rather high, 
so that all the room might hear, but perfectly calm and steady. If you do not put that knife this instant in your pocket, I promise, upon my honor, you shall hang at the next Aziz. Then followed a battle of looks between them, but the captain soon knuckled under, put up his weapon, and resumed his seat, grumbling like a beaten dog. And now, sir, continued the doctor, since I know there's such a fellow in my district, you may count I'll have an eye upon you day and night. I'm not a doctor only, I'm a magistrate, and if I catch a breath of complaint against you, if it's only for a piece of incivility like tonight's, I'll take effectual means to have you hunted down and routed out of this. Let that suffice. Soon after, Dr. Livesay's horse came to the door, and he rode away. But the captain held his peace that evening, and for many evenings to come. Chapter 2. Black Dog Appears and Disappears Not very long after this, the first of a series of mysterious events occurred that, at last, rid us of the captain, though not, as you will see, of his affairs. The winter turned bitter cold, with long, hard frosts and heavy gales, and all could see that my poor father would not see the spring. He sank daily, and my mother and I took the inn into our hands, and kept busy enough without paying much regard to our unpleasant guest. Then, one January morning, the captain rose earlier than usual, and set out down the beach, his cutlass swinging under the broad skirts of the old blue coat, his brass telescope under his arms, his hat tilted back upon his head. The gray hoarfrost covered the cove, the waves rippled softly on the stones, the sun hung low and only touched the hilltops and shined far to seaward. The captain's breath hung like smoke in his wake as he strode off, and the last sound I heard of him as he turned at the big rock was a loud snort of indignation, as though his mind still ran upon Dr. Livesay. While mother cared for father upstairs, and I set the breakfast table against the captain's return, the parlor door opened, and a man stepped in on whom I had never set my eyes before. He was a pale, tallowy creature, wanting two fingers of the left hand, and though he wore a cutlass, he did not look much like a fighter. I always kept my eye open for seafaring men, with one leg or two, and I remember this one puzzled me. He did not appear sailorly, and yet a smack of the sea floated about him. I asked him what he liked, and he said he would take rum, but as I went out of the room to fetch it, he sat down upon a table and motioned me to draw near. I paused where I was, with my napkin in my hand. Come here, Sonny, says he. Come nearer here. I took a step nearer. Is this here table for my mate, Bill? He asked with a kind of leer. 
I told him I did not know his mate, Bill. I set this place for a person who stayed in our house, whom we called the captain. Well, said he, my mate Bill would be called the captain, as like as not. He has a cut on one cheek, in a mighty pleasant way with him, particularly in drink, has my mate Bill. We'll put it for argument like that your captain has a cut on one cheek, and we'll put it, if you like, that that cheek's the right one. Ah, well, I told you, now is my mate Bill in this here house? I told him he went out for a walk. Which way, Sonny? Which way is he gone? And when I pointed out the rock and told him how the captain would likely return, and how soon, and answered a few other questions, Ah, said he, this'll be as good as drink to my mate Bill. The expression of his face as he said this did not seem at all pleasant, and I had my own reasons for thinking that the stranger was mistaken, even supposing he meant what he said. But I minded my own affairs, and besides, I did not know what to do. The stranger kept hanging about just inside the inn door, peering round the corner like a cat waiting for a mouse. Once I stepped out myself into the road, but he immediately called me back, and as I did not obey quick enough for his fancy, a most horrible change came over his tallowy face, and he ordered me in with an oath that made me jump. As soon as I came back again, he returned to his former manner, half fawning, half sneering. He patted me on the shoulder, told me I was a good boy, and he took quite a fancy to me. I have a son of my own, said he, as like as you two blocks, and he's all the pride of me art. But the great thing for boys is discipline, sonny, discipline. Now, if you had sailed along of Bill, you wouldn't have stood here to be spoke to twice, not you. That was never Bill's way, nor the way of sitch as sailed with him. And here, sure enough, is my mate Bill, with a spyglass under his arm. Bless his old art, to be sure. You and me'll just go back to the parlor, Sonny, and get behind the door, and we'll give Bill a little surprise. Bless his art, I say again. So saying, the stranger backed along with me into the parlor and put me behind him in the corner so that we were both hidden by the open door. I felt very uneasy and alarmed, as you may fancy and it rather added to my fears to observe that the stranger was certainly frightened himself. He cleared the hilt of his cutlass and loosened the blade in the sheath, and all the time we waited there he kept swallowing, as if he felt what we used to call a lump in the throat. At last the captain strode in. He slammed the door behind him, and without looking to the right nor the left, he marched straight across the room to where his breakfast awaited him. Bill, said the stranger, in a voice that I thought he tried to make bolder and bigger. The captain spun round on his heel and fronted us. All the brown left his face, and even his nose turned blue. He looked like a man who saw a ghost, or the evil one, or something worse, if anything can be. 
and upon my word I felt sorry to see him all in a moment turn so old and sick. Come, Bill, you know me, you know an old shipmate, Bill, surely, said the stranger. The captain made a sort of gasp. Black dog, said he. And who else, returned the other, getting more at his ease. Black dog as ever was, come for to see his old shipmate Billy at the old Admiral Benbow Inn. Ah, Bill, Bill. We have seen a sight of times, us two, since I lost them two talons, holding up his mutilated hand. Now look here, said the captain. You've run me down. Here I am. Well, then, speak up. What is it? That's you, Bill, returned Black Dog. You're in the right of it, Billy. I'll have a glass of rum from this dear child here, as I took such a liking to, and we'll sit down, if you please, and talk square, like old shipmates. When I returned with the rum, they were already seated on either side of the captain's breakfast table, Black Dog next to the door and sitting sideways so as to have one eye on his old shipmate, and one, as I thought, on his retreat. He bade me go and leave the door wide open. None of your keyholes for me, sonny, said he, and I left them together and retired into the bar. For a long time, though I certainly did my best to listen, I could hear nothing but a low gatling. But at last the voices began to grow higher, and I could pick up a word or two, mostly oaths from the captain. No! No, 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 and an end of it, he cried once and again. If it comes to swinging, swing all, say I. Then, all of a sudden, oaths and other utterances exploded. The chair and table fell over in a lump. A clash of steel followed, and then a cry of pain. And the next instant, I saw a black dog in full flight, and the captain hotly pursuing, both with drawn cutlasses, and the former streaming blood from the left shoulder. Just at the door, the captain aimed at the fugitive one last tremendous cut, which would certainly have split him to the chine, had it not been intercepted by our big signboard of Admiral Benbow. You may see the notch on the lower side of the frame to this day. That blow ended the battle. Once out upon the road, Black Dog, in spite of his wound, showed a wonderful clean pair of heels and disappeared over the edge of the hill in half a minute. The captain, for his part, stood staring at the signboard like a bewildered man. Then he passed his hand over his eyes several times and at last turned back into the house. Jim! says he, rum, and as he spoke, he reeled a little and caught himself with one hand against the wall. Are you hurt? cried I. Rum, he repeated. I must get away from here. Rum, rum. I ran to fetch it, but I was quite unsteadied by all that fell out, and I broke one glass and fouled the tap. 
And while I continued to get in my own way, I heard a loud fall in the parlor, and running in, beheld the captain lying full length upon the floor. At the same instant, my mother, alarmed by the cries and fighting, came running downstairs to help me. Between us, we raised his head. He was breathing very loud and hard, but his eyes were closed and his face a horrible color. Dear, dearie me, cried mother, what a disgrace upon the house, and your poor father sick. In the meantime, we had no idea what to do to help the captain, nor any other thought but that he got his death hurt in the scuffle with the stranger. I got the rum, to be sure, and tried to put it down his throat, but he clenched his teeth and locked his jaws as strong as iron. With fortune at our side, Dr. Livesay came in on his visit to my father. Oh, doctor, we cried, what shall we do? Where is he wounded? Wounded? A fiddlestick's end, said the doctor, no more wounded than you or I. The man has had a stroke, as I warned him. Now, Mrs. Hawkins, just you run upstairs to your husband and tell him, if possible, nothing about it. For my part, I must do my best to save this fellow's trebly worthless life. Jim, you get me a basin. While I fetched the basin, the doctor ripped up the captain's sleeve and exposed his great sinewy arm. It wore tattoos in several places. In neat and clear lettering on his forearm, we read, Here's luck, a fair wind, and Billy Bones his fancy. And up near the shoulder, we saw a sketch of a man hanging from the gallows, done with great spirit. Prophetic, said the doctor, touching this picture with his finger. And now, Master Billy Bones, if that be your name, we'll have a look at the color of your blood. Jim, he said, are you afraid of blood? No, sir, said I. Well, then, said he, you hold the basin. And with that, he took his lancet and opened a vein. A great deal of blood was taken before the captain opened his eyes and looked mistily about him. First, he recognized the doctor with an unmistakable frown. Then his glance fell upon me, and he looked relieved. But suddenly his color changed, and he tried to raise himself, crying, Where's Black Dog? There is no Black Dog here, said the doctor, except what you have on your own back. You have been drinking rum. You had a stroke, precisely as I told you. And I very much against my own will, dragged you head foremost out of the grave. Now, Mr. Bones, that's not my name, he interrupted. Much I care, returned the doctor. It's the name of a buccaneer of my acquaintance, and I call you by it for the sake of shortness. And what I have to say to you is this. One glass of rum won't kill you. But if you take one... You'll take another and another, and I stake my wig if you don't break off short, you'll die. Do you understand that? Die, and go to your own place, like the man in the Bible. Come now, make an effort, 
I'll bring you to your bed for once. Between us, with much trouble, we managed to hoist him upstairs and laid him on his bed, where his head fell back on the pillow as if he were almost fainting. Now mind you, said the doctor, I clear my conscience. The name of rum for you is death. And with that, he went off to see my father, taking me with him by the arm. This is nothing, he said as soon as he closed the door. I have drawn blood enough to keep him quiet a while. He should lie for a week where he is. That is the best thing for him and you. But another stroke would settle him. Chapter 3. The Black Spot About noon, I stopped at the captain's door with some cooling drinks and medicines. He lay there very much as we left him, only a little higher, and he seemed both weak and excited. Jim, he said, you're the only one here that's worth anything, and you know I've been always good to you. Never a month, but I've given you a silver four penny for yourself. And now, you see, mate, I'm pretty low and deserted by all. And Jim, you'll bring me one noggin of rum now, won't you, matey? The doctor, I began, but he broke in cursing the doctor in a feeble voice, but heartily. Doctors is all swabs, he said. And that doctor there... Why, what do he know about seafaring men? I've been in places hot as pitch, and mates dropping round with yellow jack, and the blessed land a-heaving like the sea with earthquakes. And what do the doctor know of lands like that? And I lived on rum, I tell you. It's been meat and drink, and man and wife to me. And if I'm not to have my rum now, I'm a poor old hulk on a lee shore. My blood'll be on you, Jim, and that Dr. Swab. And he ran on again for a while with curses. Look, Jim, how my fingers fidget, he continued in the pleading tone. I can't keep em still, not I. I haven't had a drop this blessed day. That doctor's a fool, I tell you. If I don't have a dram o' rum, Jim, I'll have the horrors. I seen some on em already. I see old Flint in the corner there behind you, as plain as print I can see him. And if I get the horrors, I'm a man that has lived rough and I'll raise Cain. Your doctor himself said one glass wouldn't hurt me. I'll give you a golden giddy for a noggin, Jim. He grew more and more excited, and this alarmed me for my father, who needed quiet. Besides, the doctor's own words reassured me, now quoted to me, but the offer of a bribe rather offended me. I want none of your money, said I, but what you owe my father. I'll get you one glass and no more. When I brought it to him, he seized it greedily and drank it out. Aye, aye, said he, that's some better sure enough. And now, matey, did that doctor say how long I was to lie here in this old berth? A week, at least, said I. Thunder, he cried. A week? I can't do that. They'd have the black spot on me by then. 
The lubbers is going about to get the wind of me this blessed moment. Lubbers as couldn't keep what they got and want to nail what is another's. Is that seemingly behavior now? I want to know. But I'm a saving soul. I never wasted good money of mine, nor lost it neither. And I'll trick em again. I'm not afraid on em. I'll shake out another reef, matey, and daddle em again. As he thus spoke, he rose from the bed with great difficulty. Holding to my shoulder with a grip that almost made me cry out, he moved his legs like so much dead weight. His words, spirited as they were in meaning, contrasted sadly with the weakness of the voice in which they were uttered. He paused when he got into a sitting position on the edge. "'That doctor's done me,' he murmured. "'My ears is ringing. Lay me back.' Before I could do much to help him, he fell back again to his former place, where he lay for a while, silent. "'Jim,' he said at length, "'you saw that seafaring man today?' "'Black dog?' I asked. "'Ah!' Black dog, says he. He's a bad un, but there's worse that put him on. Now, if I can't get away nohow, and they tip me the black spot, mind you, it's my old sea chest thereafter. You get on a horse, you can, can't you? I nodded. Well, then, you get on a horse and go to, well, yes, I will, to that eternal doctor swab, and tell him to pipe all hands, magistrates and sitch, and he'll lay em aboard at the Admiral Benbow. All old Flint's crew, man and boy, and all on em that's left. I was first mate, I was, old Flint's first mate. And I'm the only one as knows the place. He gave it me at Savannah, when he lay a dying, like as if I was to now, you see. But you won't peach unless they get the black spot on me, or unless you see that black dog again, or a seafaring man with one leg, Jim, him above all. But what is the black spot, Captain? I asked. That's a summons, mate. I'll tell you if they get that. But you keep your weather eye open, Jim, and I'll share with you equals upon my honor. He wandered a little longer, his voice growing weaker. But soon after I gave him his medicine, which he took like a child, with the remark, If ever a seaman wanted drugs, it's me. He fell at last into a heavy, swoon-like sleep, in which I left him. I probably should have told the whole story to the doctor, for I feared for my life lest the captain should repent of his confessions and make an end of me. But as things fell out, my poor father died quite suddenly that evening, which put all other matters on one side. Our natural distress, the visits of the neighbors, the funeral arrangements, and carrying out all the work of the inn in the meanwhile kept me so busy that I scarcely thought of the captain— far less to fear him. He got downstairs next morning, to be sure, and ate his meals as usual, though he ate little and drank more, I am afraid, than his usual supply of rum, for he helped himself out of the bar, scowling and blowing through his nose, and no one dared to cross him.
On the night before the funeral, he got drunk as ever. It shocked us all in that house of mourning to hear him singing away at his ugly old sea song. But weak as he was, we were all in fear of death for him, and a case took the doctor many miles away, and he never neared the house after my father's death. I said the captain was weak, and indeed he seemed rather to grow weaker than to regain his strength. He clambered up and down stairs, and went from the parlor to the bar and back again, and sometimes put his nose out of doors to smell the sea, holding on to the walls as he went for support, and breathing hard and fast like a man on a steep mountain. He never particularly addressed me, and it is my belief he had as good as forgotten his confidences. But his temper grew more flighty, and allowing for his bodily weakness more violent than ever. Now, when he drank, he would draw his cutlass and lay it bare before him on the table. But with all that, he minded people less and seemed shut up in his own thoughts and rather wandering. Once, for instance, to our extreme wonder, he piped up to a different air, a kind of country love song that he must have learned in his youth before he had begun to follow the sea. So things passed until, the day after the funeral, and about three o'clock of a bitter, foggy, frosty afternoon, I was standing at the door for a moment, full of sad thoughts about my father, when I saw someone drawing slowly near along the road. He tapped before him with a stick, and wore a great green shade over his eyes and nose, making him for a blind man. And he hunched over, as if with age or weakness, and wore a huge, old, tattered sea cloak with a hood that made him appear positively deformed. I never saw in my life a more dreadful-looking figure. He stopped a little from the inn, and raising his voice in an odd sing-song, addressed the air in front of him. Will any kind friend inform a poor blind man who has lost the precious sight of his eyes in the gracious defense of his native country, England, and God bless King George, where or in what part of this country he may now be? You are at the Admiral Benbow, Black Hill Cove, my good man, said I. I hear a voice, said he, a young voice. Will you give me your hand, my kind young friend, and lead me in? I held out my hand, and the horrible, soft-spoken, eyeless creature gripped it in a moment like a vice. It startled me so much that I struggled to withdraw, but the blind man pulled me close up to him with a single action of his arm. Now, boy, he said, take me in to the captain. Sir, said I, upon my word, I dare not. Oh, he sneered, that's it. Take me in straight or I'll break your arm. As he spoke, he gave it a wrench that made me cry out. Sir, said I, it is for yourself, I mean. The captain is not what he used to be. He sits with a drawn cutlass. Another gentleman... Come thou, march, interrupted he, and I never heard a voice so cruel and cold and ugly as that blind man's. 
It cowed me more than the pain, and I began to obey him at once, walking straight in at the door and towards the parlor, where our sick old buccaneer sat, dazed with rum. The blind man clung close to me, holding me in one iron fist and leaning almost more of his weight on me than I could carry. Lead me straight up to him, and when I'm in view, cry out, Here's a friend for you, Bill. If you don't, I'll do this. And with that, he gave me a twitch, and I wanted to faint. This and that utterly terrified me of the blind beggar that I forgot my terror of the captain. And as I opened the parlor door, cried out the words he had ordered in a trembling voice. The poor captain raised his eyes, and at one look the rum went out of him and left him staring sober. The expression of his face was not so much of terror as of mortal sickness. He made a movement to rise, but I do not believe he had enough force left in his body. Now, Bill, sit where you are, said the beggar. If I can't see, I can hear a finger stirring. Business is business. Hold out your left hand. Boy, take his left hand by the wrist and bring it near to my right. We both obeyed him to the letter, and I saw him pass something from the hollow of the hand that held his stick into the palm of the captain's, which closed upon it instantly. And now that's done, said the blind man, and at the words he suddenly left hold of me and with incredible accuracy and nimbleness, skipped out of the parlor and into the road, where, as I still stood motionless, I could hear his stick go tap, tap, tapping into the distance. Some time passed before either I or the captain seemed to gather our senses, but at length, and about at the same moment, I released his wrist, which I still held, and he drew in his hand and looked sharply into the palm. Ten o'clock, he cried. Six hours. We'll do them yet. And he sprang to his feet. Even as he did so, he reeled, put his hand to his throat, stood swaying for a moment, and then, with a peculiar sound, fell from his whole height, face foremost, to the floor. I ran to him at once, calling to my mother, but I could see a thundering apoplexy had struck the captain dead. I find it a curious thing to understand, for I certainly never liked the man, though of late I began to pity him. But as soon as I saw he was dead, I burst into a flood of tears. It was the second death I had known, and the sorrow of the first still lingered fresh in my heart." This concludes this episode of Treasure Island. Please join us next time when we learn what Jim and his mother find in the sea chest and indeed what they find on the captain's body.